So the sheikh that uh, sheikh that I had the honor to study with, he was Iraqi, and he would always say Najiba, and I would say what? He would say elevate the force. He would say beautiful. He would always speak Fusha Arabic, which is a very classical form of Arabic. And he would, when he would ask for his breakfast, something in Shakespearean English, and we'd say, why are you saying? because God is beautiful. One of the things that we do as Muslims is begin and in women's mosques elevate discourse, to be able to engage in a conversation in ways that beautify our speech, but even more so beautify our soul. So I start with the dua that um, Musa alayhi salam, Moses said, uh, he was known to have an impediment in his speech, a difficulty to speak. So he said in his appealing to God, Rabbi shrahli sadri wa yassirli amri wahlul uqtatan min lisani yafqa. So this dua is, means please expand my chest and my heart. Rabbi shrahli wa yassirli amri, ease my burden. When we discuss the Quran, the word and the scripture given to us by God, we have to be very careful about how we engage and approach this. So uh, what I wanted to do today was concentrate on, what I wanted to do today was concentrate on the story of, appellate from her story three lessons. So usually this story of Maryam or Mary is told with the beginning of the birth of Prophet Isa or Jesus, alayhi salam, as if Mary or Maryam had no prior agency, importance, or elucidation of a journey that leads her to give birth to Prophet Isa. From her voice, her story, and actually Maryam's mother, we can map three elements that allow us to achieve or form a daily sense of peace. The Quran is a book but it is also a set of stories that engender us with huda. If you were listening to the Quran that was recited by, uh, I don't know, Imam, President Jihad Turk, not President of the United States, we already have a Muslim who's president, but, um, <laughs> just kidding, um, uh, President of Bayan, um, he, you heard him refer, you heard in the, in the recitation of the Qur'an, the, the recitation of the Qur'an today, the Qur'an describes itself also as a book of guidance for what we call a practical theology of everyday living on earth. What does it mean to have a practical, embodied, lived religion? The three elements that I want to emphasize this evening um, that spoke to me in rereading the story of, of, of Sayyida Maryam are the following, three things. I also spend some time writing poetry when I have time. My two children are here today. And for them to hear me speak, they've gone to churches, synagogues. I speak about 40 times a year. And for them to hear me speak in my community is, is an incredible, profound gift of generosity, especially to have both my son and daughter here. So I just wanted to thank the women's mosque for that. I usually take them with me elsewhere, and they hear me speak um, when my son was asked at the age of four to draw a picture of what mommy does. He drew a podium with me running in with his briefcase late. Remember? 
because <laughs> I'm always a little bit late. But he has, now that he has an image of his mother being in her own community, and I thank you for that image, so that inshallah when he's asked to draw again, he can draw it within his own community. So the three things I wanted to emphasize that come from Sayyidah Maryam, the three stories, the three pieces are wholeness, healing, and hope. How do we learn from her story, wholeness, healing, and hope? And I wanted to point out this story has implications not just for gender, but for interfaith relations. It is the story that literally opened up the first asylum for Muslims fleeing from the persecution in Arabia to Abyssinian African Christian, an African Christian haven. What's been heavy on my mind has been the situation in Charleston, as well as the burnings of churches all over uh, the south of the United States. So it's really uh, amazing that when the Muslims uh, were being persecuted in, in Arabia, they went to an African Christian community and received asylum after reciting many of the verses that were told about Maryam, that the Nejis or the king of uh, Abyssinia said, we will take you here, we will give you asylum. So Muslims, of, uh, Muslims have a special relationship with uh, both African Christians as well as the descendants of the diaspora. So I just wanted to point that out, that there have been times actually looking back in history that there have been more tolerance than there have been times in, in present day. So I wanted, I think the Muslim-Christian relationship is really important and this story is not just important because it empowers women, but it gives us a tool of interfaith understanding between Muslims and Christians. And we have that example from almost 1400 years ago. So let's start with wholeness. What do we learn from the Quran about this concept of wholeness? We hear, remember when the angel said, O oh Maryam, verily Allah, God has chosen you, purified you, and chosen you above women in the world. So wholeness here, Wholeness here is not defined by how I see you or how you see me. She appeared with fault. Maryam was the first single mother. She appeared with fault to her community. But it is her devotion to God that made her whole. It was not the interpretation of others' piety. So it is her devotion to God that made her whole. It is her relationship with God that made her whole. And mentioned in the book, Maryam, in the Quran, the story of Mary, when she withdrew from her family to a place facing east, she placed a screen from them, and we sent to her our angel, she who was in the position of most bias against her, a woman having a child without an identifiable father. Who is sent to her? The most honored voice that can come to anyone. And who was sent to her? This is call and response, who was sent to her? Angel, Angel Jibreel. So the most, she gets the most honor in the time that she gets the most defiance from her community. She's cast out. She's given the most honor. She is put in a place of wholeness. So we sent to her our angel Jibreel, and he appeared for, before her in the form of a man in full human form. She said, I seek refuge with the most beneficent God from you if you do fear him. He says, I am only a messenger from your Lord to announce to you the gift of a righteous son. She said, how can I have a son when no man has touched me, nor am I unchaste? He, the angel, said, so it will be. Your Lord said, this is e that is easy for me. 
and to appoint him as a sign to mankind and a mercy. Prophet Isa, as a mercy from us, and it is a matter already decreed by God. So I heard some beautiful testimonies tonight about women who have gone to other places who felt judged by their outward appearance. So a lot of times it is our outward piety that matters to people. But really, actually, piety, righteousness, virtuosity, the cloaking of ourselves that is most important is not in the eyes of other human beings. It is in and with our relationship with God. When we internalize the voices of others who seek to interpret our wholeness for us, we do damage to ourselves. What we believe about ourselves is how we see ourselves. What we believe about ourselves is how we see ourselves, and ultimately, how we treat ourselves. How we see ourselves is how we treat ourselves. But really, what's powerful here is that we also do damage to ourselves. So the ways we see ourselves, how we believe about ourselves, is how we treat ourselves. And ultimately, if we are able to harm ourselves, we also will inevitably harm the other. We now know research shows if we cannot have feelings of hope, we live in a culture of numbness, where people can hurt themselves without feeling. So what we believe about ourselves is how we see ourselves and how we treat ourselves. Ultimately, if we do harm to ourselves, we are able to harm others. Mercy or rahma is not only a manifestation of how we treat others, it is also a practice of ourselves, of showing mercy to ourselves, of restoring wholeness to ourselves. Mercy is a manifestation of how we treat others in addition to how we treat ourselves. Violence to the self is the first stage of declining empathy for others. Violence to yourself allows you to step into the capacity to harm others. Al-Ghazali says, to show empathy to another, we are actually cause some pain ourselves. The human being, to show empathy, to show love to someone else, actually has to feel some pain. So if we are numb to our own pain, we cannot feel for the other. So this notion of wholeness is profound because it gives us a lens by which we see ourselves. It gives us an understanding of ourselves, but ultimately it also helps us dictate the contours of how we treat one another. So wholeness is very, very important. The second H, my students, I'll say the three H's, and they're like, well, you know that wholeness starts with a W. I do know that, but the W is silent, right? I'm looking at my seven and nine-year-old. They're like, yes, mommy, it's too late. Um, so one of the other things I wanted to encourage us in the relationship with the Qur'an is it's a book of guidance, and it allows us to have a direct connection with God. And one of the things that is so profound about the words of God is that for different, for different people, it has a healing capacity. For some of us, it's just hearing the Qur'an. For some of us, it's understanding the Qur'an. If you are a person who has a logical mind, it's being able to engage the text in a very uh, cognitive way. So think about the ways that you generally get passionate about a topic and bring that to your relationship to the Qur'an because then you bring that to your relationship with God. So I think it's really beautiful. This was so fascinating. Um, I was thinking a lot about Mary's story, Sayyida Maryam's story, and how 
it begins with often the birth of Isa alayhi salam, uh, Jesus uh, upon him be peace. But I looked again at the text and remember that Mary's birth is also a profound lesson. Do you, did you know that? Did you remember that? Does anyone remember that? Okay, good. So Mary's birth, we see from the Quran, um, Mary's mother was told, so her Lord uh, accepted her with good acceptance. He made her grow in a good manner and he put her under the care of Zachariah. And one thing that uh, Zachariah noticed, Prophet Zachariah, is that every time he would go into the mihrab and visit Maryam, he found her supplied with sustenance and food. And she, he would say, Maryam, from where have you got this? She said, this is from Allah. Verily, Allah provides sustenance who he wills without limit. So God provides no matter what. Part of the relationship with God that we learn from Maryam, from, Maryam, from Sayyidah Maryam, is that she had a mentality of abundance in God's ability to provide. In our times, like now in Ramadan, especially with our long summer days, we are taught to be in moments of lesser means. It is part of our healing to know that after difficulty comes ease. It is a reminder that a few things are necessary for healing, a conversation and a daily relationship with the divine. We need a few things to maintain. We learned this from Maryam in her upbringing from Zachariah. So there are a few things that are necessary to maintain a healing relationship in looking at the example of Maryam. One of them is solitude. She was in a place where she would practice solitude. That's part of the raising in the holy places that she was raised. So it's interesting, the way that Maryam was raised prepared her for one of the greatest confrontations that she had that we'll discuss later, which was the birth of Prophet Isa. So we need solitude. And we also need another thing, the space for contemplation. We also need an open heart for that conversation with the divine. So we need an open heart, we need solitude, but we also need a community to learn from and support in that journey. Maryam was in a community of learning the way that she was raised and mentored by Zachariah. And it's really important that communal and relational healing are very important. And one thing that, Mary, that Maryam's story illustrates to us is an ethic of care. That Zachariah had an ethic of care in how he took care of Maryam and raised her. I don't know if you look at some of the tafasir and the story of how uh, Maryam ended up with Zachariah. People were actually vying to take care of her, to, to nurture her, to mentor her. So this ethic of care before she is put into this very difficult situation. So the other thing that is beautiful, so we look at the way Maryam was raised, and then we look at Isa alayhi salam and his birth, Jesus. So she conceived him, and she withdrew with him to a far place. And this is such a beautiful story, the way that any of you have, who have given birth, so it excludes any of you, but if you have been present, <laughs> unless there's something I don't know that's happened in the last hour, um, um, advances in science, but um, to keep in mind that this story that is described, uh, she conceived him and she, the pains of childhood drove her to the trunk of a date palm from the Quran. And she said, for anyone who has been through childbirth, this, ver this verse is incredibly profound. Would that I had died before this and had been forgotten and out of sight. Would that I had died before this, had been forgotten and out of sight. So in, again, 
she is in a place of, of, of we saw earlier in a place of, of when she was dismantled from her community. Here she's in a place of incredible pain and she's doing it all by herself in isolation. Who comes to honor her in that moment? A call came unto her from, from Bello and said, grieve not, your Lord has provided what? What did he provide? First, what's the most essential thing? Think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. A water stream? a water stream under you, then shake the trunk of the date palm towards you. It will let fall fresh ripe dates upon you. So eat and drink and be glad. And if, if you see any human say, verily, I have vowed a unto the most beneficent, so I shall not speak to any human being this day. From these verses, one mentally pictures Maryam driven out, and then she is in this position where she is so dependent, but completely independent. But one of the things she does is draw on her relationship with God. If any of you in this moment are in such pain and such sorrow, know that your relationship with God is a healing relationship. Know that your relationship with the text of the Quran is a healing relationship. Know that if no one else gives you a place, a home, if no one else takes you in, God will take you in. And that is what the story of Maryam tells us, that there is healing in the relationship with God, that in that space, when no one else will be there for you, the Quran in this story tells us, even if you are in such pain that you wish you did not exist, as Maryam was, God is there for you. So take away the veils and the cloaks that keep us from accessing that relationship with God. And that's what's so profound about the women's mosque is that I heard so many stories tonight about people who said, I missed God. I missed Allah. I missed Allah. I missed Allah. Can you imagine God being taken from you because there was no space in which you could relate to God anymore? Can you imagine the single comfort taken from you because you could not build that relationship? So there is something happening. The women's mosque is a healing space. The women's mosque is restoring the right. And if the right of someone like Maryam, who was most isolated, most put in a position of vulnerability, if God could come to Maryam in such a place, God can surely come to any of us, inshallah. So then she brought the baby to her people, carrying him. And uh, this, is, uh, this is what they said. Oh, Maryam, indeed you have brought a thing which is greatly evil. Oh, sister of, of Haran, your father was not a bad man, nor was your mother an unchaste woman. Then she pointed to the baby. They said, how can we talk to one who is a child in the cradle? And we will return to this story. So again, what I wanted to say those verses because what is the outside interpretation of the phenomenology of what has happened, the phenomenon? That everything that she has done, who she is, and then the evidence. The Quran is saying this is Prophet Isa who is a mercy, a sign of God's mercy. But how are people interpreting his presence? His embodied presence is that of evil. So again, piety is not defined by what other people think, but it's that relationship with God. That which is good is really 
dependent on a relationship with the divine. So the thing that I wanted to end with is an ethic of hope. So what's beautiful about Mary's birth, um, the, his, her mother is referred to in the Quran as the wife of Imran. So when the wife of Imran said, oh my Lord, I have vowed to you what is in my womb, my child, to be dedicated to your services. So accept this vow from me. Verily, Allah is all here, the all-knowing. Then we delivered her. She said, oh my Lord, I have delivered a female child. And Allah knew better what she delivered, and the male is not like the female. And I have named her Maryam, and I seek refuge with you, her, and for her offspring from Satan, the outcast. So this, this, this daughter, who should have been a boy, what does the mother do? What does she do? Do you guys know? What does her mother do? So did she fulfill her vow? She did. She fulfilled her vow. So... This generation, this matrilineal heritage of defying convention goes backwards ancestrally for Maryam. So her mother says, her mother, uh, she's the daughter of a woman who defied convention. Usually this, this consecration of a child to service was reserved for a boy, but instead she became a student of Zakaria, and knowledge was also important. Society saw her as deficient for this holy role but her mother had an ethic of hope that her promise could be fulfilled by a daughter. Do you see this? This is a really profound story here because this idea at that time, the social convention was that a son would be able to fulfill this. But her mother had an ethic of hope that if God has given me a daughter and I had made such a vow, when I had thought that it would be a boy, she still had hope that somehow Maryam would be able to fulfill that responsibility and that her daughter could live up to the promise. So her Lord accepted Maryam with good acceptance. So it's really profound that one of the things that Maryam's mother does is not just have hope in her relationship with God, but also endow her daughter with hope. To say that, you know what, I'm going to fulfill this promise. And when we raise our daughters with an ethic of hope that they too can fulfill the knowledge they too can be teachers. They too can live up to the highest standards. We're thinking here, this is a story that's played out thousands of years ago, but this is a story played out in our own lives today. Are our sons and daughters getting equal access to education? Are we subtly telling our daughters that somehow they have a little bit less responsibility to be educated? They can take a profession that's a little less challenging. Or maybe, as some of the presidents of great universities in our country have said, maybe you're not as good at science or math. Just think about it. Think about this story that's thousands of years old and its ramifications for today. Are we, in, are we giving our daughters this embodied ethic of hope that they can fulfill the highest level of spiritual, spiritual, uh, spiritual manifestation, intellectual capacity? So for any of you who have daughters and sons, how are you treating both of them? Is there an inequity, an inequality? Is there a difference in how you talk to them? There are so many things that are so subtle. These are not always so clearly defined, but pay attention to the signals that you send. So I wanted to speak really again about return to the story of Prophet Isa's birth. And so I wanted to go back to Maryam and now back to Prophet Isa, which we usually, uh, we usually start with or, or Jesus. So Prophet Isa's birth teaches us again another ethic of hope. He speaks on her behalf because she has taken a fast of speech. The hope manifests 
not always in us having to do the work, but also believing that there are others who can help us shoulder our burdens. But it is not that Mary was passive. It is not that Maryam was passive. It is that she had a keen sense of God's sense of provision, and she faced the most heinous accusations and the crowd with a belief that there was a way that would come through. We have to be open to others helping us. Part of what we need to do as a community is understand who we begin to heal relationally. How does our space of the masjid become a space where when we go into it, we leave feeling more whole, more healed, and with more hope? Not less healing, more pain, as if shards of, of, of glass are being brought into our soul and we're being cut apart. That is not the space of healing that our tradition tells us to. We also have to be open to others helping us. So I do conflict resolution for masjids, for churches, for synagogues. One thing that you learn is that everybody has conflict. So every community has conflict. What we also learn is every community has a gift for healing. And one of the gifts that this story gives us is that we have to be open to others helping us. Here, who is Maryam open to helping her? A child from the cradle. What are the gifts of those who are young in our community? What are the gifts? Ma Maryam herself was very young. Keep this in mind, too. We know that her age was very young. At this time, women had children very young. So she was not a 30-something-year-old going out and doing this. We, her exact age, uh, scholars have talked about, but she was very young. So this idea of being able to ask for help and be open to others helping, it is not passive or weak. It is a way to have them work with us. It's important that we be in community. So one of the things that the women's mosque does is allow us to learn to be in community. To learn to be in community. It is not a skill that comes naturally. The skill to be able to manifest rahmah, mercy, everyday rahmah takes practice. That muscle needs practice so that when something serious happens and someone attacks you, that you could respond with mercy. You better have been able to exercise the muscle of mercy in a small way so that when the big challenges come, when a community is going to be divided, they already have that muscle of mercy exercised individually and communally. So those are the three pieces that I wanted to share with you. There's such a richness to this story. We could mine it for hours at a time. But the other thing that uh, the sheikh that I studied with taught me, he said, Najiba, there's also beauty in being brief. <laughs> he said, if you can't speak elegantly and briefly, then that means you have to work on your intelligence. <laughs> because he said, if we go on and on, that means that we have not spoken in a way that gives the lesson that we're actually trying to give. So if someone goes on and on, it means that they have to work that thought out on their own a little bit, maybe use a little solitude before they come out into the world to speak their thoughts. So beauty and brevity is also very important. So I want to encourage you when you leave today, think about wholeness. What is your state of wholeness? What is your state of healing? And what is your state of hope? Shukran Jazakallah. And I think we're ready for our uh, prayer. And I really want to thank all of you for being here in this circle today. And to know that no matter what, you have a path to our Creator. 
and that no matter where you are, no matter where I am, full of fault, full of anything, you only have to ask and you only have to speak. And maybe you're not ready to ask or to speak. Maybe you just whisper. But something will come, inshallah. Shukran jazakumullahu khairan.